Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. This is probably the shortest text of the whole series. It's only six verses. How much trouble can you get into in six verses, right? You may, you may want to wait till the end to answer that one. We've seen all through Revelation. I won't re, rehash the whole thing. But we've definitely seen these two ways. They've come really clearly into focus these last couple of chapters. There is the way of the slain lamb. The followers of Jesus are moving this way, following his leadership. And there's the way of the beast, which is what I would call the way of the world, the way the world does things. And, and in, in the past, like I say, in the past, past two or three chapters, we've seen really clearly that these are very different ways. Uh, we've seen the fall of the way of the beast, the fall of the systems of the world, how they really implode upon themselves. They have no life. They only bring death. And we've seen the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. But today, in our text, in Revelation 20, starting in verse 11, I almost need to change the title of the whole series because I've been beating you over the head all the way through that this is a book about now until today. Today it changes to the book about then. Because from here on out, we're beginning to see something that happens at the very end of time as we know it. Um, maybe a bit of, of last week would be the same thing. But, but from this point on, definitely, it's future. It's something that's going to happen at the end of time, when Christ comes and the kingdom is consummated, this is the final straw, if you will, before the kingdom is fully here. So I'll read these verses, verses 11 to 15 of Revelation 20. You can follow along with me in your Bible. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Feels like I should read some more. That just seems too quick, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah? Okay. Please, if I've lost you already, we're in trouble. It's a short text, but it's really full. And like all the way through Revelation, you know what? You guys may really disagree with things I say today. That's okay. But as I've wrestled through it, I'm going to share with you what I've found, and hopefully that will challenge and stimulate your thinking, and we can all um, actually follow Jesus together regardless of how we interpret Revelation. But one of the ways I thought, how can we really approach this text? What's the best way? And I just want to start with what John saw. This is the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus. So let's just start with what he sees. There's not much length, but the scope of this passage is is huge. And there's, there's six things that we can see with John. The first one is he saw a king on a throne. Verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now, throne is a big issue in Revelation. The first time we see God's throne is in chapter 4, verse 2. Um, and from that point on, in 18 chapters, he mentions throne 38 times in 18 chapters. The throne is a really central image, which only makes sense because it's the kingdom ruled by the king, right? Um, often the action takes place in the throne room. Let me, let me ask you this. Just guess. 
If, you were to, if I was to tell you there were throne room scenes in Revelation, and there was a certain number of scenes, my wife can't answer this, or the Bergens, because I've already told them about it. How many scenes would you guess, how many throne room scenes would you guess there would be in Revelation? Seven. Wow, what a coincidence. Way to go, Anna Marie. You get the prize. Gummy bears for Anna Marie after it's over. Seven throne room scenes. And it just shows that what's building is this complete totality of the earth is the throne room of God. It is where he rules. Um, I, I could go through them all. If you, I won't do that. But there are seven scenes. This is the seventh scene where action takes place in the throne room of God. And, and it says, I saw a great white throne. Literally, in Greek, it says, I saw a megathrone. This is the biggest throne of all. And who's seated on it? All it says is him. So the question is, is it God, the Father, or is it Jesus, the slain lamb? And the answer is yes. All throughout the New Testament, it never differentiates. In fact, Paul in Romans 14 says it's the judgment seat of God. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes again, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 4 and 5, it talks about this one who sits on the throne. And who's worthy to open the scrolls? And then we see the slain lamb come into the picture. But where is the slain lamb? It's in the middle of the throne. The whole New Testament makes really clear that Jesus and God the Father somehow are one and the same. We don't understand how that happens. Or if you do, see me afterwards because I'd like to figure it out. But, but, we don't, but they're the same. The one who is seated on the throne is God. The one who is seated on the throne is the slain lamb, Jesus, who died for our sins. And that's what we see. Jesus, even in Matthew 25, which in many ways, the, the story of the sheep and goats, I'll refer to that a lot. That is a parallel passage to what you're seeing here. Jesus says, when the Son of Man, when I come in my glory and am seated on my throne, Jesus seated on his throne. And here it's God. or it's, it, it just switches back and forth all through the New Testament because they are one and the same. Throw that up to your Jehovah's Witnesses buddies and see how they deal with that one. Um, What's the second thing he saw? He saw the earth and the sky flee. Now, why? Why would the earth and the sky flee from the presence of this throne? Well, it says in, in uh, verse, at the end there, in verse 11, there was no place for them. This throne and this scene was so huge and so powerful and so big that there was no room for earth and sky. God took up the space of everything. But another reason that they fled was because in the presence of a holy God, a corrupt and sinful creation can't stay there. It's gone. And we know from the next chapter, which we'll get to next Sunday, that he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And the old one is going to be purged and gotten rid of and recreated, renewed, so that there's everything new. The fact that they flee says, number one, he's powerful, he's huge. But number two, it says he's pure. And creation as it is cannot stay in his presence because of his purity. What's the next thing he sees? He saw the dead come back to life. Verse 12 and 13. I saw the dead, great and small, everyone, it says. The rich, the poor, the strong, the weak. Verse 12 says, all of them are standing before the throne. And then in verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Now last week we talked a little bit about this, and I thoroughly confused you, so I want to come back to that so I can confuse you again. Um, Revelation teaches, I think, that if you are a follower of Jesus, I think the New Testament teaches this, that the moment you die, you are in the presence of God. But Revelation also seems to say that the people who aren't followers of Jesus remain in some kind of state of deadness until this final moment. Because at that point it says all the dead are raised. 
those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Um, John 5, 24, Jesus says, my followers have already passed from death to life. And that's why we, the minute, absent with the body, present with the Lord, says Paul, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Believers, I think, immediately go into the presence of God. Others wait until this final day when all the dead are raised and stand before the throne. All are raised at this point of judgment. Now, the question here is, if you've read this passage and thought about it, is this just Lost people who don't follow Jesus who are in front of the throne? Or is this everybody? Many people look at the nature of the judgment. What are they judged according to? To what they had done. And they say, well, this can't be believers because we're saved by grace. It's not by good works that we're saved. So it must just be people who don't, haven't accepted Jesus' forgiveness. If we say it's everybody, then it makes, look, it makes it look like Christians earn heaven by what we do. Does it not make it look that way? Because we're judged by our deeds. Well, I've been thinking it through, and I'll tell you where I stand on this. I think it's everybody. And I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. One is this whole idea that some of these people who stand before the throne receive blessing because their names are written in the book of life. It mentions that. And a second is what I said earlier. This is very much parallel to what Jesus says in Matthew 25, and he says, when I come, I'll sit on my throne and I'll gather the nations and I'll separate them as a shepherd does the sheep from the goats. And I'll say to them, the sheep will say, why, why are we blessed? Why? And he'll say, because you did all these things to me. You fed me when you saw me and you clothed me. And the sheep will say, when did we see that? And Jesus says, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And the goats say, when did we see you like this? And Jesus says, whenever you didn't do it, you didn't do it to me. Remember, And that's, that, that, that's the same parallel passage. And that has sheep and goats, lost and, or lost and saved, both. People who are forgiven and people who have not received the forgiveness of Christ. So I think that this judgment by deeds, even though we really don't like it necessarily, and it makes us a bit uncomfortable, we can't get away from it. Romans 2, 6 to 8 says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. And 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, we make it our goal to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul includes himself there, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes again, if any man builds on this foundation, which is Jesus, using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, and straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. We can't get away from a judgment by deeds. It's there for everybody. Does that make anybody feel a little uncomfortable? It makes me feel uncomfortable. Does that mean we go to heaven because of good works? Well, it sure sounds that way. Hold the thought. We're going to come back to that because we're not answering questions yet. We'll do that in a minute. We're talking about what John saw. But I want you to wrestle with the fact that it's hard to get away from this idea of judgment by deeds. And it, the next thing he saw actually kind of reiterates. He saw books and a book. Verse 12, and books were opened. And then there's this different book. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Two specific things. We know the book, singular, is the book of life. We'll talk more about that later. But what are the books? Well, it says the dead are judged according to what's written in the books. Evidently, and I, 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 I'm... Just go with me here. God's, I, don't, I don't think God's got a library and he pulls a book off the shelf that has my name on it. I think this is a metaphor. Okay, I think God's saying th there's a record of every single deed done. Now, an accounting of our actions, and that makes it even scarier to me. Uh, I remember growing up as a kid, 
Uh, I like books, but I really like movies. And I can remember thinking one pastor one time said, when we get before that throne, God's going to show your movie to the whole world. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there's a lot in that movie that I do not want to be seen. by. that used to terrify me. Anybody else? That's not a nice thought, right? Even if we are nice people, there are things in our life that we do not want exposed. We certainly don't. But the idea here with this books is that nothing that is done is missed. Because the next thing we notice that he sees is he sees judgment according to deeds. We're back there again. If it's all of us, what about grace? But just for a minute, just to really hammer this one home, I'm going to make you... Sorry about this, but verse 12 and 30. You ever have somebody that doesn't get your point and you just have to say it three or four times before they wake up and actually hear what you're saying? You ever done that? Or are you the person that doesn't get the point? Which one are you? Okay. Well, God knows very often we're the one who doesn't get the point. So in verse 12, he starts by saying the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now, just in case you didn't hear me at the end of 13, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Now, while we may not see how that fits with the passage in Ephesians, it says we are saved by grace, not by what we've done. It's through faith, but based on what Jesus, while we can't see how both those work together, we have to acknowledge they're both there, don't we? Would you agree with me? They're both there? Okay, thank you. Absolutely. That's confident. Thank you very much. Last thing he saw. He saw two different destinies. In our text, we only see one. Verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But the second destiny follows just after it in chapter 21. Just listen to the first seven verses of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the last heaven and the first earth were passed for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And verse six, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to him who is thirsty. I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. You see the contrast there? There are two destinies. The people that follow this way of the beast and refuse to surrender to the way of the Lamb will be thrown into what Scripture calls the lake of fire, eternal punishment, the second death. And yet those who, who surrender and ask for forgiveness and follow and, and, and begin to follow the way of the Lamb, they will receive the new heaven and the new earth, the presence of God with them forever. I can't wait to talk about this next week because this is the best news in all of Revelation in chapter 21. But I want you to see there's two different ways to go. There's two different destinies. That's what he sees right here. Now, there's a lot packed into those verses. I told you you couldn't get into much trouble in six verses, didn't I? But we want to look at, there, there are two questions that have been nagging me all week, all for a couple of weeks I've been reading this, and they're probably nagging you. The first question, question number one, is it what we do or what Christ does? A common question as you share the gospel with other people is this. If you were to die tonight 
and you were to stand at the pearly gates and God was to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? What would you say? It's been used for years. It, it originated actually out of a program based in, in the southern United States in Florida. A pastor by the name of D. James Kennedy developed a, a witnessing program, a way of sharing your faith. And that was one of the two questions that they asked people to get them talking about it. It's an important question because the Bible, as I've said, clearly teaches the way we get to heaven is not by being good enough. It's not by doing enough good things so that God rewards us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And even that faith, it says, is a gift from God. It's not by what you do so that no one can boast. Nobody can say, I was good enough to get to heaven because none of us are. So our answer to that question has to be nothing. We can't say anything. We haven't done anything to get us into heaven. Our answer to the question has to say, Jesus died for me. That's the only way I can be forgiven. That's the only way I could ever have a relationship with you. But here, as in other places in the Bible, as I've, I've said earlier, judgment seems to happen based on what people have done. How, how can both of those be true? I think the problem has to do with how we think of that term judgment. I think most of the time when it comes to God doing judgment, we see judgment as determining merit. The teacher says, you passed the test because you did enough work to get a passing grade. You earned your mark. Okay? It's, it's, it's looking at a situation and saying, okay, you deserve this, so I'm, I'm making a judgment call and I'm giving you this because you deserve it. It happens all the time, this form of judgment. In the courts every day, judges assess the actions of individuals and they determine whether they're innocent or juries assess it. Uh, or, you know, either one, <laughs> depending on the type of case. I'm not going to go into the legal standing there. I'm not very up on that. But it, they assess it and they make a judgment based on what a person has done to determine whether they merit freedom or punishment. And that's what, what uh, this judgment is determining merit. But there's another aspect of judgment as well, and that's what I think we miss. Go with me on this one. Okay, let's just imaginative scenario here. Let's say that when summer finally comes again, uh, it turns to fall, and then fall turns to winter, and all the leaves fall off the tree, and you decide, I'm tired of my house, I want to buy another house in town. So you sell your house, and you buy this other house in town, and in the back of your yard, in the other house, is a tree with no leaves on it. And you, like me, are a gardening idiot. I know, I know that very few of you are, but let's just pretend you have my gardening acumen and you have no idea what kind of tree this is. You can't tell. You've looked. You know, you don't, the owner didn't tell you, so you just don't know what kind of tree this is. So you watch all, you know, all through the winter. You wonder, I wonder what kind of tree that is. And you watch for the leaves in the springtime, but that really doesn't help you because, remember, you're a gardening idiot like me. And you're like, oh, it has leaves now, and they're green. Great. What kind of tree is it? I don't know. But further on, as summer begins, you notice something to happen, starting to happen. And, and, and as you watch, believe it or not, magically, by the power of God, apples appear on that tree. And even a gardening idiot knows that is an apple tree. All right? I got it. It's an apple tree. Now, am I saying in my gardening wisdom, oh, you worked really hard. You deserve to be an apple tree. I'm not, am I? That apple tree didn't do anything to deserve to be an apple tree. It just is an apple tree. And yet I am making a judgment. That is an apple tree based on what I see. I know what it is. Now, don't carry the metaphor to its full extent because then that makes God the gardening idiot. Stop right here. Don't go any further because he is not. But what I'm saying is there's also a type of judgment that is an assessment of real faith. 
It's not determining whether you deserve heaven or not, but it's assessing whether what has happened inside of you is real faith and trust in Jesus. In, your, in the pastor's corner, I, I put a clip from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase from the message from James chapter 2. I just want to read a little bit of that to you. I like the way Eugene does it. You can follow along in your pastor's corner or you can just listen. But it's from James chapter 2, verses 14. I'll skip a little bit at the end and read the last phrase. He writes, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this life if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup? Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, Sounds good. You take care of the faith department. I'll handle the works department, but not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you completely sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse in your hands? The last phrase, separate faith and works and you get the same thing. A corpse. You see, this is vital to our understanding about the judgment of God by works and the grace of God given to us. We do not earn eternity with God by being so good that He lets us in. But He does assess whether our faith is real by, by the fruit of our lives. Our faith cannot help but produce deeds that look like Jesus. We have to see the key to this whole understanding is the second book. It's that book of life. The disciples, back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent them out and they did all these amazing things. They went out and they, they told people about the kingdom of God and they healed and they cast out demons and they came back and they were so excited because they had this power. And they said to Jesus, look, even the demons submit to us when we use the name of Jesus. And you know what he said to them? He said, don't rejoice at the power that you have, that the demons submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's not about what we do. It's about whether our name is written in the book of life. We, we see the book all throughout the book of Revelation. It's vital. It means that you, your life has been given to the Lamb. It's the Lamb's book of life. And when they are judged by what they are done, it's an assessment and the merit is awarded based on the book of life. Okay? Based on what Jesus has done. It doesn't matter what they've done. The only thing that keeps them out of the lake of fire is the book of life. Now that leads us to a second question, which is even more troubling, I think, for us. For us, And that's question number two. Do I have a real faith? Okay, Jeff, so what you're saying is, yes, I'm saved by Jesus and his death on the cross and his forgiveness. But that my faith should demonstrate deeds. That if I really am a follower of Jesus, that my life will have fruit. That real faith can be clearly seen by what flows out of it. You know, I think for far too long, the church has stressed that salvation is all about just saying a prayer and nothing else. And in a sense, it is. Once we say that prayer and ask God to forgive us, He takes control. Our name is in the book of life. But as we do that genuinely, He begins to transform us and change us. Well, can we know? How can we know? 
right? The problem with this whole thing is we know ourselves. Do you know yourself? And we know that even though we may do good things, there are times that we don't. And there are times that even when we do good things, it's bad motives. John, the same John, in 1 John 5.13 says, I'm writing this so that you can know that you have eternal... Well, how do we know? Let me give you four things I think that that can help us settle this in our minds. First is this, real faith depends upon what Jesus did. It has to start there. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks about building a life and he says you cannot build on any foundation other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation upon which it has to start there. Any good that you do, any hope that you have of a relationship with God has to start at that cross. Because just like we read in that paraphrase, James says, guys, you can't even be good without that. You can try to be good, but your motives are all mixed up. The only good can start with Jesus changing you on the inside. The human heart is the thing that has to change. Because of our sins, we're separated with God. Scripture says we're at war with God. We're spiritually dead. We don't have any hope apart from the cross. But Jesus did something amazing and He offered Himself for us. That's why back in Isaiah 53, that prophecy, remember that? He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him and by His wounds we are healed. That heart problem that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden was fixed on the cross. Any real faith has to start there. It starts with Jesus. Apart from Him, He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He he is the only life there is. Real faith starts there. Second, very clear in this passage, real faith will always have fruit or deeds. Now, I put in your outline 1 Corinthians 3.1. That should be 3.13. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but what He says is, in that passage, is, is your work will be shown for what it is. The fire will come. This day will come when judgment will happen. And all the motives and impurities will be burned away and you will see whether these, these, this real faith gave deeds or not. I've already made it pretty clear that we'll be judged by these deeds and that, that real faith should lead that. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I, I do want to clarify something. And to do that, on your outline you have point C and point D, and I'm going to switch those. Um, I want to do C first. What, what we need to realize, faith, when I say it always leads us to deeds, we need to realize that what's being spoken of is not perfection, but progression. Okay? Not perfection, but progression. As I said, our greatest fear is that we know ourselves. None of us evidence a life. None of us bear fruit that looks completely like Christ. We have not arrived. And so it's scary to think about being judged by our fruit. That's why I like Philippians. That's why I really, really like Paul. Because you know what Paul said? In Philippians 3, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. And at the beginning of Philippians, in Philippians 1.6, he says, Being confident of this, that God, who started this work in you, will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We're not talking about becoming a Christian and having this perfect life that always looks like Jesus. But we're talking about, over time, a gradual progression because we are His and He is doing the work. Remember, it's founded upon Him. It's not perfection. It's progression. It's today, I'm a bit more like Christ than I was 20 years ago. Spiritual life in many ways is like physical life. You are born as a baby, and guess what? By being born as a baby, you have the right to be, well, I think before that we won't get into that political discussion, but you are considered human by everybody when you are born. 
But let's be honest. How good are you at being a human when you're first born? You can eat and you can dispose of what you eat. And that is about all you can do, isn't it? You can vocalize and let people know that it's time for you to eat. You can't even touch your finger to your nose when you're born. I love watching babies and they're like, what is that? Oh, wow. You know? Spiritually saying, we come to Christ, we step on that foundation, we say, I want to build my life on you, I want to accept your forgiveness, but guess what? I can't do anything, Jesus. But over time, as a human, gradually you learn to walk. You're taught, you grow, you gain strength, you gain coordination, you begin to actually be pretty proficient at being a human. In the same way, it's this whole period of progression that Jesus calls us to himself, we are reborn, and we grow little by little, in Christ's likeness. In Philippians 3.21, it says, Our citizenship is in heaven. We are spiritually born. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they are like His. Now, that does say too, though, don't, don't get me wrong here, just because we don't earn our salvation doesn't mean there's no effort involved in the Christian life. Some people, including myself at times, like to say, you know what, I'm, I'm a Christian and I know I'm supposed to forgive, but man, I really don't want to apply the effort to forgive. I don't want to apply the effort to self-discipline. I don't want to work with the Spirit of God in my growth. Just go home today and read, read Second Peter 1. Starting in verse 5, he says, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. One of the things that we've got to realize about bearing fruit is we work with the Spirit of God. Just like as a child, your parents put you on your feet and you try to move forward and they, they, they help you along and nurture you until you gain strength and can walk. Jesus says you need to make every effort to bear fruit realizing that it can only come because you're built upon me. That's why the third thing I want you to see about real faith is that it yields true humility. When you understand that the only way you'll have this fruit (laughs) is Jesus, when you understand that you blow it more than you don't blow it, and yet because He's forgiven you, you're moving forward, that inspires humility. You begin to see that in spite of yourself, God is going to use you, and, and grasping that says, Wow! That's why in the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, after God says to the sheep, thank you, you've done all these incredible things for me, go into your, into your rest. And they say, we've never done that for you. How could we have ever pleased? Yeah, we, we've never done that for you. And he says, if, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. The sheep didn't even get that they were doing the work of God. They, just, they were surprised. There's a humility there. I can tell you if you're arrogant about all the good things that you've done, that is, that is a clear indication that you're not following the way of the Lamb. You don't have to beat yourself up either. But, but, but there's this whole idea that real faith yields humility. That's why Paul, the guy who wrote more in the New Testament than anybody else, the guy who had these visions of the third heaven, that's why he would say, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. He knows. The more we know about how faith leads to fruit, the more humble we become because we realize our fruit is just so spotty. 
Jesus came in the world to save sinners of who I am the chief and or who I'm, I'm I'm the worst. And Paul doesn't say I'm I'm you know. He says right now I'm the worst. Right now I'm still struggling with sin, and yet God is He's saving me. Not just saved at the moment I asked Him to forgive me, but saving me through my life as I walk with the Spirit, as He changes my character and puts me on the way of the Lamb. We're judged by our deeds because the surest way to know that our faith is real is by the way that we live our lives. We don't gain heaven by our deeds, but the fact that our heart is with Jesus is evidenced in the way we live our life. Does that, do you see that? It all starts with the cross. God is patient with us. He reads the books, guys. He knows everything. And yet He also knows that a heart that is His is written in the book of life. You know, He says other places in Scripture that it talks about being awarded and rewarded here for, for the things that we've done. They'll be given crowns for our good deeds. But as you read through Revelation, what do people who have crowns do with them? They bow down before the Lamb and they cast their crowns before Him saying, You are worthy. Because they realize any fruit that they bore in their life came from the foundation of Jesus who worked in and through them. So what's the revelation for today? Three things about faith that I think will help us to live in a way the Lamb would have us to live. Number one, faith is surrender to the one on the throne. You know, people tell me all the time, I, I love Jesus. I think He's the wisest teacher that ever lived. And it drives me batty because then they don't apply a thing He says to their life. Oh, we love Jesus. He's a great teacher. Well, how about forgiving your enemy? How about turning the other cheek? How about not worrying about tomorrow? How about laying down your life for those around you? Why do we allow ourselves to separate what we believe and how we live? If we really, really believe Jesus is the greatest teacher that ever lived, would not, wouldn't we follow Him? If I told you this morning that I'd buried a million dollars in the church drive, in, the, in the yard in front of the church, number one, you wouldn't move at all, would you? Because you know I don't have a million dollars. But if you knew me to be an eccentric multi-gazillionaire who lived in hope and did really weird things, and I said, hey, I just buried a million dollars in the front yard of Grace Baptist Church, and you walked by and you happened to see this pile of dirt where something had been, what would you do? How many of you go get a shovel? You would, wouldn't you? Some of you just start right there, right? I wonder how deep it is. I can get new fingernails. I can get new pedicure with a million dollars, right? Belief results in action. And, and faith is surrender to the one on the throne. It's saying, you know what, Jesus, I believe you are that one. I, I'm going to live my life by the way of the Lamb, even if it doesn't make sense to the world. Faith is surrender. I had a chat with Betty Corbett years ago. I still remember this chat on a Sunday night. And we were talking about how as we teach children, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. And she said, when I was a child, they didn't do that. So we had a different phrase. She said, we would say, put your trust in Jesus. And I said, that is a way better phrase. Because what faith is, is not asking God to just come and do something for you. It's saying, I am putting myself, my trust in you. I'm going to trust that what you say is true and I'm going to live accordingly. I think that's, that's a way better way to say it. We Sometimes we spend so much time trying to convince people of who Jesus, all the details about Jesus, when what the world needs to know is He is a trustworthy leader. He's the one we can trust. That's what Revelation is saying. You know what, guys? You're dying. It looks like everything's falling apart, and yet 
Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, is the one you can trust. He's the one who's bringing it to his end. Second, faith is a way of life, not just a doctrine. Doctrines are really important. Believe that. I study theology because I think it's vital. But faith is not a doctrine. It's not knowing all. You don't see Jesus saying to the sheep, Oh, come over here because you can correctly explain the doctrine of the incarnation and predestination. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say to the goats, Oh, you guys failed your atonement quiz. Sorry, you're out of here. He says, I can tell you guys have really put your trust in me. And I can tell you guys haven't. Faith is a way of life. Not just a doctrine. I heard a story of a missionary who was working in an African jungle in the midst of all these villages and he got lost, stumbled into a village and found one of the elders and he said, I need to go to this village. I don't know how to get there. Can you help me? And he said, sure. And he turned to the edge of the village, which was just bush. And he pulled out his machete and he said, follow me. And he started hacking a path through the bush. And they walked for two hours. Still no path. The missionary thought, how do I even know I can trust this guy? So he said to him, Where, where's the path? I don't understand how we're going to get to my village. Where's the path? And the elder said to him, Bawana, he said, in this place there is no path. I am the path. I'm the way you get there. You have to follow me. And that's what Jesus says. It's not when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, he is the way to heaven. But he's also the way of life that brings forth fruit that shows you are his. And why is this our passion? Why do we want to bear fruit? Because faith wants others to see what John saw. Faith realizes that when people see Jesus for who he really is, it will transform them, that it will transform the world. There's two ways of life, the way of the lamb, the way of the beast, the beauty of one, the depravity and death of the other. And faith wants everyone to see that the only hope for life is to put your trust in the way of the lamb. Realizing that you can't do it, you need his forgiveness and his power to walk that way, but that that is the only way to live. You afraid? Of, you afraid? Sometimes we get scared about our faith, don't we? Because we know. Let me leave you with two thoughts before we sing. One is this: If today you worry about the fact that your life is not producing enough fruit, and am I is my faith real? The very fact that you want to be like Christ says to me, the Spirit is at work in your heart. And if the Spirit is at work in your heart, that means your name is in the book of life. Okay? If you're kicking yourself, saying, I'm just not good enough, you're exactly right. That, that whole fear of wondering, am I bearing enough fruit, is a sign the Spirit's there. So relax. And realize the second thing, it's all about surrender and dependence. Okay, Jesus, when I see you leading me somewhere, I'm going to bow my will to yours and ask you to work through me. And then my life will bear fruit because of what you've done. Let's pray.